I have a fear of heights. Anybody else out there? Matt, I know Matt has, yeah. Um, I didn't realize how strong that fear of heights was until I had children. And children and heights do not go well together. Uh, In 2005, we moved our family to Colorado from Oregon. And the first night, we stayed in the city of Twin Falls, Idaho. And it was dark when we um, got off the freeway and we went over a bridge into the main part of town. It was dark, couldn't see what was or was not under that bridge. There were a lot of people in this small town, and we were wondering why there's so many people here. And you know, the hotel was full, and the restaurants were full. Ran asked, and we found out that there was a base jumping competition going on. The next morning, we um, are driving back over this very narrow, very. Um, unsure, you know, concrete and steel contraption over 486 foot drop to the river below. What is, as I'm crossing the bridge, I am keeping my eyes straight ahead to the solid ground ahead of me. I am gripping my seat, right? And I am trying to breathe. What are Ran and my daughters doing? Ooing and awing over the beautiful cliff walls that they can see. And then Rand sees people jumping off the cliff. What does he do? As soon as we cross the bridge, he whips the car to the side. And my daughters, eight, five, and four, go running toward the edge of that cliff. Life is uncertain. I can't control everything, right? As much as I try to plan ahead and think about all the possible situations, I can't. That doesn't mean I don't keep trying. Now, base jumping or seeing your daughters parachute off a cliff might be your best day ever. But you know, life has other kinds of cliffs right, those uncertain things that we can't avoid, even though we might try. Job loss comes, cancer, heart attack, divorce. Parenting in itself is full of uncertainties. Now, speaking of uncertainties, I'm even someone who I like to know what's going on. And when I'm reading a book, Sorry to say, I'm one of those people who often looks at the back of the book. I wanna know if my favorite character is gonna survive this terrible thing, okay, that's happening in the book. But that's not real life. We don't get to see what's on the next page or what's over the edge of the cliff. Now today, just so you know, our story in the life of Jacob is gonna end in a cliffhanger. And so, if you're one of those people like me who is tempted to look at the end of the book, the end of the story, what I want you to do is I want you to go to Genesis 32 and find verse 22 
and literally put your hand over top of it. And definitely do not turn the page. Because again, life is full of uncertainties. We don't know what the future is gonna bring. So let's back up just a little bit. We've been in a series, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we're in the final segment of this about Jacob. And what we've learned so far about Jacob is that he was, came out of his mother's womb, right, grabbing onto his brother's ankle. Um, he went on to be a teenager, or maybe a young adult, who tricked his brother out of his birthright. And then on the advice of his mom, he was, became an imposter who deceived his brother and his father out of the blessing that was meant, that his father had meant for Esau. Now the last time we saw Jacob with Esau, and when they were living in the same camp, Esau had said, I am going to kill Jacob. And when his mom heard that, he told Jacob to flee. Broken relationships, that's another place that can be like a cliff edge, a cliff of uncertainty. Our actions and our words can hurt people, right? And sometimes we don't know that we've hurt someone and you get that phone call or that email that says, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Ugh, what did I do? What are they gonna say to me? How can I, how can I fix this? Sometimes we know what we did, we've wronged someone. And we know we need to ask forgiveness. We need to try to fix that broken relationship. But the uncertainty is how will that other person respond to us? What will the consequences of our actions be? So the first thing that Jacob does when he finds out that Esau is gonna kill him his mom, on his mom's advice, he flees. And he goes to Haran to his uncle Laban, and we talked about that last week, how um, during his time with Laban, um, he gains a family. But I wanna talk about before that, I just wanna remind us of God's promise to Jacob. And his, what I love is that his promise came right after he had deceived his brother, not after any reconciliation, right? So let's look at the promise that God gave in Genesis 28. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families on earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then this is Jacob's response. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And a few verses later, Jacob says this, if God, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I set up for a pillar shall be the God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth. Notice the if statements that Jacob uses. We do that, don't we? God, if you will do this, then I will do this. We bargain, we try to bargain with God. I think I see in this though, that Jacob has learned that authority figures in his life aren't always trustworthy. So I think for Jacob, it's like he needs God to prove that he's trustworthy. And then another figure, Laban, also proved untrustworthy. At the very edge of Jacob getting the wife that he so desired, Laban tricks him, right? And he wakes up and finds out he's been married to the wrong sister. But let's fast forward. Um, We're kind of skipping some of the story that his interactions with Laban, but what we know is that his time with Laban, he now has two wives, two concubines, 11 sons, and a daughter. During this time, he also has become very successful at breeding animals, and um, he has, (laughs) didn't, okay, that was not, good one. Um, (laughs) Not only has his family grown, which is part of the promise that God gave him, right? So he now has offspring. He has also become very successful and very wealthy, and we'll see that in our verses uh, a little later. But notice that God is keeping his promise, and God is even answering some of those if statements. He said, if you will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. Believe me, he has plenty of clothing to wear. So at at the end of his time with Laban, in chapter 31, one through three, it says, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. (gasps) Ah, good. A solution to this trouble brewing with Laban Let's leave, good idea, God. Oh, wait, there's a big problem. In fact, it's a big, hairy problem waiting for him back in the land of his father. Remember, Esau had said, I am going to kill Jacob. So would God bring him back to the land in peace? Jacob is heading toward a cliff 
of uncertainty. What would happen when he meets Esau again? Is he headed for his death? So the scene that we are looking at today, I think there's a map. Yeah, if you can see the map. Um, He's been living with Laban way up here in Haran, which is actually where Abraham was when God said, leave and go to a land that I will give you. So he has gone backwards, but now the scene of our story is that now he has traveled all the way down. He's on the very edge of going into the promised land. I think there's one more map that kind of, um, so again, this is Jordan River. This is where Isaac and Esau are living, the land that God had promised to bring Jacob back to. And this is where um, Jacob is right now at this river. Um, Jebak, I'm not good with pronouncing names. Um, But let's read what I'm calling Act One of Jacob on the edge of meeting Esau again. Genesis 32, one through two says, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau. Wait a second, whoops, go back. Did we not get the other verses? Go back one slide. Oh, sorry, I I forgot I put it on the same slide. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. God's camp. This word for camp is a military encampment. This is God's angel army encamped right there. And God lets Jacob see this angel army. What does Jacob do? He says, oh, God's camp. And he names it Mahanaim, which means two camps. It's like he's saying, oh, there's God's camp. Here's my camp. He's at the edge of the cliff of uncertainty, and there are two camps here, God's camp and his camp. Let's keep reading and find out what Jacob decides to do, the strategies that he uses. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. I think in sending these messengers ahead, he's trying to scope things out, right? To make sure he can be in control of the situation. I think he's also trying to soften the blow, right? Make sure Esau knows that he's got, he's got wealth, okay? He's not, it's not just Jacob coming back here. He's boasting about that wealth. Let's, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. 
O, enter your favorite word. (laughs) Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So what does he do? He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps. Fear is a very powerful emotion. It's not bad, it keeps us safe, right? But what we do out of fear can cause problems. And fear causes him to panic. And he goes into self-preservation mode, two camps. Maybe if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Besides heights, another one of my fears that many of you might know about me is I have a fear of snakes. Doesn't matter the size. Mariah knows, it could be this long. Um, And one day, again, my daughters are eight, six, and four at this time, and we're walking back from school Um, after I'd picked him up from school, and we enter our back gate to go through the backyard to the house. And I open the gate, there's a snake right there. Now, it's probably a good thing that snake was not a rattler or some poisonous snake, because I was all about self-preservation. I literally left my three daughters and booked it to the house. I didn't even think about it until later. I was like, oh my goodness. I was the first one in the house. Okay, self-preservation. Not always a good thing. Here's the next thing that Jacob does. And Jacob said, oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Oh Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This prayer, it's a good prayer. It looks good, right? These are good things, being reminded that we don't deserve the steadfast love that God gives to us. And yet, I think this prayer is a prayer out of desperation, right? Um, it, it continues to show his lack of trust. Jacob was, has a past full of deception. He has authority figures in his life that have not proven trustworthy. And again, when he was at the very edge of getting what he wanted, having it taken away. He's at the edge of meeting Esau again. What do we do when our past and our present collide at the cliff of uncertainty? 
So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. Can you imagine? That was just a present. That's a huge present that he's giving to his brother. He's trying to manipulate his brother with this huge bribe. This is bigger than what a town would have given as tribute to the conquering king that came in. This is huge. And then as we go on, he says, he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. Likewise, he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. I see here that he's playing on his brother's ego, right, through repeated statements of humility. And then it says, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And actually earlier, he had also stayed, it says he stayed the night. And then he put this present together, and now he's staying the night again. To me, I see this as avoidance. He's avoiding the conflict. I know that one. I know avoiding. I don't really want to do that right now. So again, what do we do when our past and our present collide at the cliff of uncertainty? So this is what Jacob did. This is Jacob's camp. He wanted to control the situation. He used his status of wealth and power to try to control. There was a lot of fear and self-preservation He was pleading, that pleading prayer of desperation. He tried to use manipulation. He tries to appease, and there was avoidance. Do you see yourself in any of those? I do. What I love is that God is the God of Jacob. God is the God of you and I. Even when we try to control the situation, what if things had gone differently when Jacob saw God's camp, the angel armies? Well, there's another time when this happens in a very similar location, and that's when Joshua is leading the people of Israel back into the promised land. And if you know 
the story, it's right before they're going to go up against the city of Jericho. God had promised that he would drive the Canaanites out of the promised land, the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so long ago. But that meant the Israelites would need to go to war against these cities, against the Canaanites. Would they succeed? Would God really do what he promised? Or would they die at the hands of the Canaanites? Joshua 5, 13 through 15 says this. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And look what Joshua does. He fell to, on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did. Do you notice any difference between Jacob's encounter with God's camp and Joshua's encounter? Joshua asked questions. I think like Paul's verse earlier, I think Joshua was the one who was still to find out and to know God was there to ask those questions. What does my Lord say to a servant? Jacob acknowledged that this is God's camp, but that's it. He didn't ask God any questions. What do you want me to do? How shall I approach my brother? Regardless of Joshua's response or Jacob's response, God who shows up with an angel army is the same. So who is God when our past and our present collide at that cliff of uncertainty? Even when the cliff is our own making, a result of our own wrongdoing. So what I see with, uh, from God's interactions with Jacob is that God meets us where we are. He's the one who sought out Jacob. God gave jo- Jacob the promise right after his deception and his flight away from God's promised land. God was with Jacob. God invites us into his camp long before we're ready to invite him into our camp. And God gives to us freely. There's no manipulation involved on God's side. One of my favorite passages, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says this. But God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do I have this passage? No. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. Another thing I see in God's responses to Jacob is that his strategies are perfect and they are always for our good. Romans 8, 28 through 29 says this, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. God's camp, his strategy, God's camp is a place of refuge, not fear. Psalm 34, one through four, I'm sorry, four through eight says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So as we find ourselves at those cliffs of uncertainty, we may respond in similar ways to Jacob. We may try to control the situation and use our status, our power. We may live out of fear and self-preservation We may cry desperate prayers of desperation. That's okay. (laughs) We may try to manipulate and appease. We may avoid. You're gonna have to come back next week to find out what happens to Jacob. But the truth that I wanna leave us with is that when we face uncertain future, a future that causes us to respond these ways, God's camp surrounds us. God waits for us and he waits with us. Jesus gave this story to um, show us what the father is like. And it involves a father and two sons. And the younger son said to the father, hey, give me my inheritance. And the father graciously gives him his inheritance. 
and the son goes and he spends it and he finds himself in sin and brokenness, right? And he thinks, oh man, what, have I, what am I doing? The servants at my, back at my dad's place have it better than I do, so I'll return to my father's place. And what Jesus said is, he says that the father saw him coming from a long ways away. The father was waiting. Our God waits for us. And not only does he wait, the father ran to him. That's our God. He's the God who is running towards us, right? God is a God of great love and he meets us and he is with us right there at that place of uncertainty. I'm gonna pray for us and then Parfait and Matt are gonna come back up and lead us and then Callie's gonna come and lead us to the table of communion to remind us that Jesus paid the price for us so that we could live in communion with him. Father God, thank you that your promises do not include ifs, that you are running towards us, that your camp surrounds us. And so God, I pray that as we move toward those cliffs of uncertainty, that we would be reminded that you invited us into your camp first, that you wait with us and wait for us. In Jesus' name, amen.